This is Competition Law with Professor Karon Beaton-Wells, exploring the challenges in competition policy, law and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer or competitor. In this episode, Karon speaks with Pinar Akman, Professor in Competition Law at the University of Leeds. Pinar has been keeping a close eye on the European Commission's activity against big tech companies, particularly Google. She says that the powerful competition watchdog got it wrong in the famous Google Shopping case. In the context of Google Shopping, I suppose the comparison shopping sites could argue that it's unfair that previously they were receiving traffic from the Google search engine and they no longer are, and this is unfair and this hurts their business interests, but whether that actually distorts competition is a separate question, and I think that's the question that matters. Here's Karon Beaton-Wells. If you've ever searched for a product on Google, and let's face it, who hasn't, then this is an episode for you. In Europe, competition authorities have big tech companies like Google well and truly in their sights. In episode six on competition law, Jeffrey Manny told us about one of the most talked about cases to date, a case in which the European Commission decided that Google had broken the law against dominant companies abusing their position in a market. The Commission fined the search engine no less than 2.4 billion euros and ordered it to give its rivals equal treatment. Professor Pinar Ackerman has spent years researching the law on abuse of dominance and she finds serious flaws in the Commission's decision. Pinar says that if this decision is upheld on appeal, it'll be us as consumers, not just big tech, that could be worse off. Some of her recent research has been funded by Google, but I can assure you her analysis and conclusions are very much her own. I spoke to her just after she'd returned from a conference in New York and the day prior to our interview, she'd given evidence to the House of Laws Communications Committee. So, conscious of her hectic schedule, we warmed up with a Dorothy Dixer. Pinar, why is it important to have a law against a company from abusing its dominance in a market? That's a great question. So, these rules are very important because These are the rules that would prevent a single undertaking which might exercise its market power to increase prices for consumers or to reduce quality or to reduce choice for consumers. And I should also note that modern competition laws are not against the existence of such market power per se, because market power, which is generally defined as the ability to increase profitably increase price or reduce output, can be the result of one company being far more superior than the other companies on that market or the company being more efficient than its rivals. So having market power on its own is not prohibited in any modern competition law, but what is prohibited is the exercise of that market power, which may exploit consumers either directly through an increase in prices or a reduction in quality or indirectly as a result of pushing out the rivals of the company with market power from the relevant market so that when the rivals are excluded from that market, the undertaking with market power can exercise that market power to the detriment of consumers. Okay, so I'm sure we can all think of companies that we would readily describe as dominant in the way you've 
outline. But under the law, actually, there's some fairly standard approaches to working out when there is a dominant company. What are some of the basic rules of thumb for this? So the starting position is usually market shares. And by this, we mean we establish what the product market in question is or the service in question is. And then we look at what sort of market share does a given undertaking have on this relevant market. And although I sort of put it in quite simple terms, this is actually not a very simple exercise in practice because sometimes it's actually difficult to establish what the relevant product or service in question is because unfortunately for competition authorities, real world markets do not come defined in antitrust market terms. So the authority has to figure out what is the relevant product market. And that mainly involves figuring out what other products or services impose a competitive restraint on the undertaking in question. And once the authorities have defined the relevant market and market shares, then they also look at whether the barriers to entry to this market are high or not. So this is about whether potential competitors can enter into this market to challenge the undertaking that's being investigated. So it's not necessarily the end of the inquiry to see that this one undertaking has a very large market share over this product market. If that market is open to new entrants coming into that market, then the existence of that potential competition or the threat of competition can actually discipline the undertaking in question in that it will not be able to exercise the market power that it has. Again, this is linked to the fact that modern competition laws don't prohibit the existence of market power per se, but it's all about the exercise of that market power. Let's assume that the competition authority has looked at the market shares and the barriers to entry and determined that a company is dominant on a relevant market. Well, then what would be the hallmarks of the conduct that the company is engaged in that would lead an authority to the view that this was an abuse of its dominance rather than just aggressive competition? This is a very difficult and important question, and we don't really have consensus on this around the world if we look at the rules and the application of those rules by different competition authorities. So I can suggest some general principles, which would be, I think, in the minds of all competition authorities when they're looking at conduct of an undertaking with market power. So they would look at whether the market power has been used to foreclose a given market in an anti-competitive way. and What does that mean, foreclose? I mean that the dominant undertaking question is using that power to make the life of its rivals either very difficult or impossible in ways that would matter for the competition analysis. So we have to distinguish here between the idea of protecting competition and then the idea of protecting competitors as such. And generally, what competition authorities would want to do is to protect competition as opposed to protect competitors. And how it relates to foreclosure is that sometimes there can be instances where the exercise of market power of a dominant undertaking will lead to the departure of certain rivals from the given market in question. But it may be that these rivals of the dominant undertaking are not as efficient as the dominant undertaking 
are not bringing better products and services to the consumers. So that is what impedes their ability to compete against the dominant undertaking. What we mean by anti-competitive foreclosure in this context is usually the exclusion of rivals from the market that are as efficient as the dominant undertaking in question. Now, let's talk about what's been going on in Europe with the application of this law to big tech and to Google in particular. Just last year, the lead competition watchdog, the European Commission, handed down a record 2.4 billion euro fine for breaking this law. Tell us, what had Google been doing that drew the ire of the commission? The commission decision found that Google displayed its own comparison shopping service more favorably on Google search pages than it displayed competing comparison shopping services. And this was an infringement of Google's dominant position on the search market. So you may know if you use Google to search for products that when you search for something like trainers, Google will sometimes show you boxes on the top of the search results page with photos and the ability to click on the photo to take you to a merchant where you can purchase trainers. This is known as Google Shopping or Google's comparison shopping display. And the infringement the commission found was that other comparison shopping websites were not being displayed in the same way as Google's own comparison shopping results were being displayed on Google's search pages. Right. So they were coming lower down on the first page or even on second or third pages where we rarely ever venture to go shopping. Is that right? I think in the commission's decision, the commission treats any result that comes after page four as being in an unfavorable position in the results. <laughs> Effectively being in Siberia as far as shoppers are concerned. This decision has been really controversial, Panar, and it's attracted a fair amount of criticism. I think it's fair to say you're amongst the critics. So let's talk a bit more about the Commission's findings and why you say they got it wrong. Let's start with whether Google was dominant. The Commission identified the market for general search, said that Google had leveraged its dominance in that market to abuse competition in the market for comparison shopping services. Now, Pinar, surely you wouldn't quibble with the finding that Google dominates search. I mean, it's got 85 to 90% or more share of search on desktop or even higher on mobile. If we think about Google providing search for free to consumers, and there's a separate debate ongoing in relation to that, whether it's free or not, whether consumers are paying for that by their data, but that's a separate discussion. The free results we get on the search engine are funded by advertising. So Google is a two-sided platform, which essentially provides a service to users who do not pay for that service through revenue from advertisers, which would like to reach those users by showing their own advertisements. And several commentators have therefore raised the objection that if you look at just one side of a two-sided market, you are actually ignoring quite an important debate that you should be having as an authority, which relates to how that product is actually provided to consumers. And therefore, you must also be looking at the other side of the market. So commentators have suggested actually 
the market should be about providing information to consumers or the market should be at least about advertising funded information provision to consumers. So you would be surprised that there is actually a lot of commentary on whether search on its own can be the correct market. If you were to identify the relevant market as a market for information to consumers, which would be very broad indeed, or market for just advertising information to consumers that Google perhaps would not be dominant because there'd be many other competitors in that space. Is that the way the argument proceeds? I think it would. And indeed, um, the former CEO of Google said that Google is in the business of advertising. I mean, if we think of Google as someone being in the business of advertising, then you would actually need to include into your relevant market the competitors of Google from the advertising perspective. So the question would be, who could steal market share from Google through advertising or through stealing Google's advertising revenue? So if the commission got it wrong on the relevant market definition, and indeed that meant they might have got their finding on dominance wrong, that would be the end of the case. But let's assume for the moment they got it right (laughs) and talk about whether or not the conduct as you've described it for us would amount to an abuse of that dominance. You've referred to the Commission's characterization of Google's conduct as novel in some way. What do you mean by that? Yes, I do. Um, If we try to fit the facts of the Google case into any of the existing categories of case law, at least in my opinion, it's impossible to find the right fit. It's interesting that the commission itself, even after the decision, which is over 200 pages long, still has not spelled out what the abuse is. So if you read the decision, the commission explains what the facts are and what the practice it finds objectionable is, but it never actually spells out after 200 pages what the abuse is. So EU competition law in this area has pretty much developed on the basis of categories of conduct. And it's been criticized for that because commentators, including myself, have argued that what should matter are the effects of a practice, not what the name or type of a practice is. But for a body of law that has been established on the basis of categories of conduct, not spelling out what category of abuse of conduct one of the most prominent infringement decisions falls into is quite a problem, in my opinion, at least for legal certainty reasons and, of course, for business certainty as well. Let's just talk about one of the most common categories that often falls under the banner of abuse of dominance, and that's a refusal to deal. When a dominant company just simply refuses to deal with a competitor, as a result of which the competitor might be, as you've put it, foreclosed from the market. Is it possible to fit Google's conduct into that category? And how would we go about making that argument? So several commentators have suggested that Google's conduct was a type of a refusal to deal The dominant undertaking, which has control over an input that's indispensable to its competitors to carry on with their business, refuses to provide that input to its competitors. I mean, first of all, this would require there to be the possibility of the competitors and the dominant undertaking in question of entering into a contract for the supply of this input. For example, the Google search engine crawls websites on the internet and provides the links to those websites when a user searches 
for a query to which those websites are relevant. So in legal terms, there isn't really a contract. I don't think there's even a possible contract when it comes to displaying the results or the links to millions, if not billions of websites on the internet on Google's search pages. So the question is, if there couldn't even be a potential contract by which Google could provide this input, then what is the input that's being refused to Google's competitors? I mean, obviously, the input in question could be traffic, which is core of the case. The core of the case in Google Shopping is that comparison shopping sites were deprived of the traffic that they were receiving from Google's search engine once Google started promoting its own shopping results at the top of the page because then those results started to get the clicks and comparison shopping websites did not. And this arguably led to a reduction in traffic. So we could think of traffic as being the input in question that's being refused But then again, it's a difficult argument to make because anybody can navigate to the comparison shopping website's own pages just by navigating directly to those sites. We don't need to go to a search engine to find comparison shopping sites. And in fact, pretty much all of these comparison shopping sites predate Google's shopping service. So they have been around for a lot longer than Google's own shopping service. And if consumers find their services useful, they should be able to navigate to those sites through direct navigation rather than having to go through Google. Hmm. Sounds like the commission might have gone out on a bit of a limb here on your analysis. Let's put the technicalities aside, though, and try and get underneath as to just what was perhaps driving the commission and what was concerning it about harm here. One possible argument is harm to other comparison shopping services. And indeed, as you know, there was evidence that those services were losing traffic and presumably revenue as a result of their demotions in the search results. Why isn't that a good enough theory of the harm caused by Google's conduct? There is evidence that the commission uh, puts on the table that some of the comparison shopping sites were losing traffic as a result of Google positioning its shopping results more favorably than it was positioning rival comparison shopping sites' results. The issue with finding a reduction in that traffic to be a competition issue in itself is that such an assessment cannot distinguish between whether that loss in traffic to comparison shopping sites was a result of Google's undue exercise of its market power or whether it was because the consumers actually did not prefer to use the comparison shopping sites. Now, I think in this context, in the particular Google shopping context, the elephant in the corner of the room is really Amazon. We might think that it's Google's entry into the comparison shopping sites business that reduced the traffic to these websites. But we might also think that it was Amazon's increasing prominence in shopping and online retail that might have led to the loss of traffic to the comparison shopping sites. But Amazon is not deemed to be in the same relevant market as comparison shopping sites in the commission's decision. 
And I think this has a significant impact on the outcome. Okay, so if there's problems, as you've indicated, with this theory of harm to rival comparison shopping services as justification for the decision, well, isn't there an alternative theory and the more usual one that underpins a decision like this, and that is harm to consumers? Now, normally competition authorities would look for harm in the form of higher prices or lower quality, but one would have to be a bit more creative in this instance to work out what the harm to consumers would be, wouldn't one? Can you conjure up what that harm might have been? What would have been the theory? Sure. The theory would be that consumers would be getting results that are of a lesser quality than they would have had the undertaking not engaged in abusive conduct, which is excluding the rivals from this market. And on occasion, the commission alludes to this in the decision that consumers were not getting the most relevant results when they searched for products to buy as a result of Google's conduct. Now, there are some issues with that assessment, in my opinion. The first one is that Google never just presents a consumer with its own shopping results on top of a page and nothing else. So any search on Google, if it results in the display of the shopping unit results on top, will also have generic results for the same consumer on the same page. And those generic results offer alternatives to Google's own shopping results. And the second issue is that the Federal Trade Commission, which looked at similar conduct on the part of Google in the United States, found that the way Google changed its algorithm actually led to a more diverse set of results for consumers. And that was to the benefit of consumers because previously, let's say the results were showing four links to comparison shopping sites and a link to a merchant and a link to a retailer, that would fill up the whole page. The FTC found that when Google changed its algorithm in the way it positioned its own results at top, and then the change in the algorithm led to perhaps some comparison shopping sites and other related sites coming on later pages, it actually opened up space for other websites like perhaps Amazon or eBay to also appear on the first page. And this created a more diverse set of results for consumers than was the case before. So the same conduct was found to be an improvement in quality for consumers in the U.S., but in the EU, this was found to be a potential reduction in quality for consumers because the commission decided that consumers were not necessarily getting the most relevant results as a result of Google's practice of displaying its own results more favorably than those of comparison shopping sites. So that's very interesting that in the US, the authorities looked at virtually the same conduct and came to a very different view to that of the European Commission. Let me play you something from the head of the European Commission Competition Directorate General, Margreta Vestjaya, and Let's explore if that gives us any further clues as to what was behind this decision. Less than a quarter of European trust online businesses to protect their personal information. But what if people knew 
that they could rely on technology companies to treat them fairly? What if they knew that those companies respond to competition by trying to do better, by trying to serve consumers better, not by using their power to shut out competitors, say, by pushing their services far, far down the list of search results and promoting themselves? Pina, you hear the commissioner talking a lot there about fairness in a market. Does that help us explain why the commission responded to Google's conduct in the way that it did? Did he essentially see it as unfair? So in recent times, we see a lot of reference to the concept of fairness in several speeches of various commission officials. And I have no objections to fairness being a principle that guides lawmaking in the first place. But I think when it comes to enforcing the law and applying the law, fairness cannot be an objective that will guide enforcement and application of the law. And this is because fairness is an abstract and a vague concept, which in my opinion can lead to really any outcome that a decision maker would like to do, because any company would say, if their own commercial interests are being harmed as a result of the conduct of another undertaking, that it's unfair. <laughs> it's a fact of life. Anytime an undertaking's commercial interests are harmed, they can argue this is unfair. But that doesn't mean that giving authority to that thought or that objective is good for the interests of consumers or competition or the market Fairness might be appealing in terms of politics, but when it comes to applying the law, fairness would be a very bad guide. In the context of Google Shopping, I suppose the comparison shopping sites could argue that it's unfair that previously they were receiving traffic from the Google search engine and they no longer are. And this is unfair and this hurts their business interests. But whether that actually distorts competition is a separate question, and I think that's the question that matters. Let's talk about the outcome of the case, in particular the remedy that the European Commission imposed. I've referred to the massive fine that it slapped Google with, but it also required Google to put an immediate end to the conduct and to treat other comparison shopping services equally with its own. So what does that mean Google has to actually do? Well, we don't actually really know, and the Commission has not said anything more specific in terms of what would satisfy the Commission in terms of Google complying with the infringement decision. So the Commission has left it to Google to figure out how to put an end to the infringement. In some ways, this gives Google the freedom and the discretion to choose in which way it's going to stop the infringement. In another way, though, Google is adamant that it didn't actually do anything that was wrong. All it was doing was making its product more attractive to consumers and to advertisers, which was its legitimate business interest. And Google is currently appealing the decision. So Google was put in a position where it doesn't agree with having infringed the law, but has to find a way in which it's going to stop infringing the law, which it says it didn't infringe in the first place. 
what Google did was essentially separate its shopping services, not necessarily legally, but for accounting purposes, from the search engine. So it's quite an innovative idea, I suppose. And what now happens is that Google bids for the spots in the shopping box on top of the page like anyone else does. And it's been internally separated from Google's search engine. I see. So it has taken immediate action in an attempt to comply with this remedy. And I do notice that recently the European Commission pointed out that it's been monitoring and it's seen an increase in the number of competing shopping services appearing in the box at the top of the first page of search results and getting an increasing number of clicks. So that suggests that at least from the Commission's point of view, the remedy it's imposed is being complied with. But as you said, Google is appealing this decision. When might we see an outcome to that appeal? It's difficult to know, probably not anytime soon, because these appeals take a long time in the EU. And at the end, there might actually be a second appeal where one of the parties or both of the parties may take the decision of the general court, which is the court of first instance, to the court of justice. Let's not forget that the commission started its investigation into Google in 2010, and it took seven years to ultimately take a decision. And I wouldn't be surprised if it took us another four or five years before we actually have the end of this case. In the meantime, though, the European Commission has said that this decision is a test case, which suggests that depending on the outcome of the appeal, of course, as you say, we won't know that for some time, it might have implications for Google and other practices that Google engages in, or indeed implications for other big tech companies that might see themselves now in the line of fire. Do you see this case as setting a precedent in some way that might be a worry for big tech? I think it certainly could worry big tech for various reasons, because one of the arguments of Google in this case is that essentially the decision sort of puts undue restrictions on Google's ability to innovate and change its product as it desires and as it sees in the benefit of its users and advertisers. So if the case ends in line, essentially, with the commission's decision, then this raises serious questions in terms of, well, how will Google know when a change in its algorithm or when a change in its design of its pages is going to be found to be an anti-competitive use of its dominant position, assuming that search is the relevant product and Google has dominance on this. For example, travel. So we know that there are online travel agents which only sell airline tickets. And I think Google occasionally also shows results when you search for airline tickets in a separate box where it compares prices of airline tickets for you. So this could be another specialist area in which one day we could have a case that Google is excluding other, let's say, online travel agents from the market by showing its own results. For other tech companies, the main implications, I suppose, the fact that, first of all, 
the Commission is happy to push the boundaries of the provisional visa of dominance quite far because it's very difficult, if not impossible, to find previous precedent which supports the finding of an abuse in the case that the Commission did in Google search. And second of all, the issue I raised earlier, what does this mean for a tech company's ability to change its product? And therefore, for those big tech companies, a serious question is, are they really allowed to change their product as they wish? Sure, and that would have implications for us as consumers or users, for sure. Sounds to me, Pina, that it's not just going to be Google and the Commission watching for the outcome of this appeal with great concern, but as you said, other big tech companies as well, and perhaps us as consumers, certainly a space to watch. Clearly, this case has ramifications beyond Google and shopping search results, but we're not going to know the outcome anytime soon. As I'm sure you've picked up from Pinar's analysis, there are many technical aspects of the case that are quite controversial amongst the expert folk. But there are also bigger questions about why we have competition laws in the first place and who they're meant to protect. Meanwhile, the European Commission is not quite finished with Google yet. In July, it topped its own record, fining the company 4.3 billion euros for tying Google products with its Android operating software, a case we'll be sure to be talking about on Competition Law 2. But next week, we move back into the policy arena when we talk to someone who's given a lot of thought to how government policy should respond to the age of big data and how we can reap more of its benefits. Peter Harris is the chairman of the Productivity Commission in Australia, and you'll want to hear what he has to say about clever government initiatives to promote data access and sharing, and why we as consumers should have a right to our data. Until then, you can find links to some of Pinar's work in the show notes, and as always, our other resources and links at competitionlaw.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. Competition Law was produced by written and recorded.com and I'm Karan Beaton Wells. <laughs>